Welcome to episode 18 of Acquired, the podcast where we talk about technology acquisitions. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today, we have a very special episode that kind of breaks the mold of the show. Um, we had an opportunity that we absolutely couldn't pass up. And even though we're not covering a, a single specific deal, um, we think this is going to be uh, a, a super, super interesting les- uh, episode for listeners out there. So, uh, David, you want to tell them about our guests? Yeah, we have. We are lucky to be joined by a special guest today, Taylor Barrida, who is the VP and head of Corp Dev, Corp Strategy, and Strategic Partnerships at Adobe. So, welcome, Taylor. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, excited to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Of course, quick uh, background on Taylor. He joined Adobe in 2013. Uh, before that, he was the VP of business at Zynga. And before that, he was also relevant to our show, head of corp dev at Yahoo. Um, he has a JD MBA from Northwestern. Uh, and after Northwestern, spent a couple years at Bain before getting into the deal making world. And perhaps most interestingly, uh, you are the first guest on our show who is a former professional athlete. Uh, Taylor uh, played professional soccer or probably more accurately football in England. <laughs> so maybe we'll get into that. Lots of deal making in that yeah, world. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, uh, I would say that looking back on, I didn't have the language at the time, but the, there was no real U.S. scene when I came out of college. And so effectively, I became an independent solo soccer entrepreneur, had to go kind of <laughs> figure out how to, how to insert myself into the, the European game. And uh, it was an amazing life experience, but uh, a, 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 not always the easiest. Yeah, man, that could be like a whole separate episode. Probably not of this podcast, but I'm sure it's a it's a cool story. So what we thought we'd do for this episode is uh, kind of stick to our typical structure, um, but instead, as Ben mentioned, of talking about uh, one acquisition in particular, we just thought we'd use it as a vehicle to uh, tailor get your insights kind of from the inside of being in Corp Dev and how you think about uh, deals. Um, and acquisitions as you're as you're going through them. So we have a bunch of questions, but I thought we'd start with sort of the acquisition history and facts section as usual. And I think the the best way to kick off would be something you know that probably most of our listeners are curious about, and I'm curious about. How do conversations typically start between corp dev and startups? You know, either when you're approaching startups or when they're approaching you. What's what's the beginning of the story usually look like? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think the you guys even doing this this podcast and this focus is, um, I think, filling a nice uh, gap and need because it's not something I spend a ton of time thinking about because at some point it's just sort of natural and it seems very fluid and relationship driven and and not some big moment of uh, you know, hey, we're for sale. Although you know those things do happen, but. Um, yeah, and, and the, I think it can be very sort of mystical and seem like this dark black art that you know. And I, th- I find sometimes that entrepreneurs, when it feels that way, they tend to pull back and, and be very reserved because they're not sure mm. what they can and can't say, and they don't want to say the wrong thing, and all of which is totally fair. And so, um, on our end, what I've always done individually when I've been a deal lead, and then what the culture I try to create on our group is that you remember that um, the process is fluid and it's hard to know which ones are going to actually go the distance and and lead to a deal and which ones aren't. Um, The Valley, as we all talk about, and sort of the broader technology industry outside of the Valley is incredibly small. And so 
um, because of that, it's, it's very relationship oriented. And um, because of that, the way these conversations often start is, is just literally a connection and intro like, hey, you guys are in this space. This company's doing interesting things. You know, you guys should, should just get to know each other. Um, I've always liked, um, after stumbling across it at some point in the last couple of years, uh, Mark Sister's um, blog post on investing in uh, lines, not dots. And, um, you know, I think his concept is, is that it's very hard to make a decision when you only have one point in time. But when you've had um, connections over time and you have the benefit of sort of seeing people say what they're going to go do and then hopefully go do it or something, something better, it, it develops credibility and um, you have time to sort of process and have a perspective so that on how it fits in. And, um, and so oftentimes it's as simple as that. We get introduced, we sort of say, hey, you should, you should talk to someone. Um, there absolutely is the, the other sort of 20% case where some company has been going off in a space that we haven't been tracking or a company that we haven't necessarily focused on that decide they either get the stereotypical inbound strategic interest from, from someone else in the space and um, they decide that they want to you know, talk to others and see if they you know, want to sell or they want to sell um, to us or frankly sell to the highest bidder, that type of thing. Um, and we'll get those calls, we'll take those calls, and we will sometimes do those. But those are, that's a high bar, um, and we try hard to develop relationships so that sort of 80% of it is more strategy-driven, more relationship-driven, and there's broader perspective um, and a broader um, context that's developed over a long period of time. Yeah, and in that original kind of introduction when someone says, hey, you know, um, this company is a, a newer company, they're playing around in sort of a similar space or similar cu- customer uh, segment to you guys, um, What's the context for starting that relationship? Is it is it a, a partnership or is it just like, you know, let's not play any games. We sort of know that there might be some acquisition at some point in the future or, you know, what's the incentive for that entrepreneur to um, kind of start that conversation? Yeah, look, you can waste an enormous amount of time if you just, you know, run around the valley talking to all the big companies, right? That's not your job. Your job is mm-hmm. to build value for customers. And at time, some point, you're going to be able to monetize that value either through an IPO or the sale of the company. And um, with, you know, that as context, I think sometimes you get into a scenario of like, well, and I've had, I've had introductions where a VC was an investor in a company tried to make an introduction for us. And the entrepreneur told the VC who was on his board, like, why would I even take that meeting? I'm not trying to sell the company. You know that. <laughs> and um, I've always found that kind of humorous because the whole point is, you know, it's like, it's like the old saying of, you know, when you want money, ask for advice. When you want, you know, uh, advice, ask for money and that whole thing. It's like if, if you're like calling us asking to be sold, um, it certainly can happen. But, um, you know, if your first interaction is that it uh, it puts an awful lot of weight on that interaction and doesn't need to be that way and I think it also ignores the the point which I always make um, and when we sort of talk about it over time as as things develop is that if you're smart as a seller you should you're going to have a fiduciary duty to get the highest value you can for the business when it comes to that time so that's just that just is but at some point once the deal takes place. Um, you and the team will be working there. And so is it a place where you, where you think your vision can not just sort of go and get parked, but hopefully can be accelerated? And it's not um, an, uh, an end as much as it is a beginning. And it's, if, 
is it the, are, you know, are they the type of people that you want to work with? Do they see the world the same way? And um, those things, sometimes you think like, oh, that doesn't matter. We're just going to sell the highest bidder. And it's like, well, yes, of course we get that. Everyone gets that. But um, it doesn't mean that you should ignore all other stakeholders, all <laughs> other factors. And um, yeah, the way you've sort of sussed those out and frankly due diligence on us and other, other places and try to see whether it feels right is by getting to know people over time. So I actually think it's best when it's explicitly not around a specific um, conversation. Mm. Um, it's certainly fine if there is a specific partnership that seems very interesting with a big company, but those also can be colossal wastes of time. Um, every s small company thinks that every big company is, is the keys to the kingdom and a partnership with them will unlock everything. But oftentimes they take a very long time to get done. Once they're done, they take a very long time to mature. And the ones that are truly game-changing for startups are few and far between. And so it doesn't mean you shouldn't do them. It just means you have to be pragmatic about what you should expect from them. Um, and so if there is a partnership you want, um, we oftentimes you know, act as sort of a concierge into this wildly complex 15,000-person company, um, which we sort of know how to navigate. And from the outside, it's probably extremely hard to figure out who to get to if you want to talk about a partnership around one particular product line. Um, so we can definitely do that. But like I said, I think it's best oftentimes if it's much more open-ended and it's just, hey, we're in this space, would love to meet, you know, this VC that we're, you, we both know, um, thought we should, we should get to know each other and, you know, not looking for funding, not looking to sell, but, you know, would love to, love to grab coffee and just talk about what we're doing. It's amazing, you know, as, as we're talking about this and, and even as we were preparing for the episode, like how much this mirrors the process of raising venture capital too, yeah. um, which, uh, to be honest, I mean, it's an education for me. I never really thought about that, but we coach our companies when they're thinking about raising around, you know, all the time, you know, you're always raising, you're not always closing, but you're always raising because of this very, you know, it takes time to build relationships and, um, VC investors, as you point out, you know, the Schuster blog post is great about wanting to invest in needing to invest in lines, not dots. And, occasionally there'll be a dot that you know is so compelling you have to invest in or it would seem for you guys you have to buy but um it takes time to build these relationships what uh what do you think you know as as you're doing that uh, maybe talk a little bit about kind of the importance of culture and that relationship and the people fit um i know it's something that's really important to you in adobe you know what are how are you assessing that when you're talking to entrepreneurs I'd say Adobe, it's uniquely important to us. And we've uh, walked away from, you know, extremely large deals, you know, north of billion dollar because we didn't feel like the culture fit was there. And part wow. of it just has to do with how we think about what we're doing and what we think has made us an enduring business over 30 years in a really dynamic space. And, um, you know, the company has morphed from you know, postscript and printing tools and, and <laughs> things like that, you know, into desktop publishing and then creative tools and now into marketing. And, um, and, and now Photoshop sort of, itself was an acquisition a long time ago. Yes. Yeah. It, it, again, that's somewhat unique. And then it was, a, I, my understanding was it was a couple guys and a product, but yes, it was, the <laughs> nascent piece was there and then they built around it. How does that, you know, you talk about um, the qualities that you look for when you're acquiring someone to be a culture fit. How does that impact the outcome of the acquisition and is there like anything in spe uh, specifically that you sort of look for as okay th this is going to be 
you know, this is going to make this outcome financially successful for Adobe because this person has X mindset. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's definitely related. I mean, I always say, you know, we don't care about winning the press release. Um, you know, you create value. And one of the reasons why valuing companies is art, not science, um, in a strategic acquirer scenario, you know, versus a private equity or whatnot is that like, look, it's, and even in private equity, this is, this is really true. If you get down to it is that, you know, your valuation comes become because of a present value of your future cash flows. Like what drives those future cash flows is what you actually go do in the market together. Yeah. And inevitably we're not like a holding company that's just going to buy great properties and let them roll. We, we, we're trying to have a point of view around the market and say, Hey, look, we can come together and maybe it's not one and one equals three, but you know, there's some sort of element of, um, that overused word of synergy. And we're looking for leverage and looking for a perspective that we can accelerate the vision of the entrepreneur, but also frankly, accelerate our own vision and hopefully even broaden it at times. Um, just as we did when we went from, you know, creative to marketing with the amateur acquisition, excuse me. And, um, so it's the reason it's so important is that if you have an incredible strategy and incredible vision, we all know, it's meaningless. It's about execution. Like big companies are no different than startups in that effect. Execution creates value. Strategy is what allows you to have the opportunity to um, get into that mode. Um, but you got to go do it. And I think the one last thing, and um, you know, we've uh, touched on this a little bit when we were catching up before the call, is that the to me, if I had to pick one hallmark that gives me a, uh, a sort of good positive early indicator that we're on the right track is when I start to see through the back and forth and comparing notes on the strategy and the vision that this concept of accelerating uh, the entrepreneur's vision around where they're going is there, but it's not. that's not the only thing. The other thing is they actually start to embrace the broader vision that we have um, and say, you know what, I actually think I can expand your vision and I want to get in and I, if, if, I could, if I could work with you guys on that, I could do something bigger. And so oftentimes you'll see over time that the, the deals that work really well and where, where it particularly works well for the founders or you know, CEOs is where they end up loving the concept of getting inside a bigger company and, and maybe they're really dyed in the wool product um, people and all this raising money and all this other stuff is you know, part of what they have to do, but it's not what they love. And all of a sudden they're unleashed and they get to just go do what they, they want and spend all of their energy there. And I've, so whether it's here or, you know, two of the smaller deals I did while I was at Yahoo, um, uh, one was for a company called Citizen Sports, uh, founder named Mike Kearns. I founded that company with another guy named Jeff Ma, who's uh, well known from the uh, bringing down the house days um, and, and all that from MIT. But um, uh so Mike Great. came in and just did phenomenally well. And then another was um, a company called Intenow, um that was uh, founded and spun out by uh, a guy named um, Adam Kahan. And those two guys stuck around Yahoo for Mike just left about a year ago. And I think Adam's, I think, still at, uh, still at Yahoo. And they rose to be, you know, two of Marissa's SVPs of product. Um, and these were, you know, smaller acquisitions. So it's not like they came in the door doing that. But uh, they had a real passion for you know, sort of online media and where it could go and um, sort of not just what they were doing with their product, but what you could do if you applied some of the principles of, you know, social and mobile to the broader Yahoo business. Um, and we've seen the same thing here at Adobe. And I think it's, you know, I think it's, it's a classic sign that, uh, that things will work out quite well. 
It's uh, it's really cool to hear you talk about that. We had in one of our early episodes, we had Kurt Del Benny from Microsoft on, and we talked about the Accompli acquisition. Um, and he talked about this very uh, fact that you know one of the things that Microsoft is thinking about now in terms of M and A is is just what you're talking about about the people and the culture fit. Since Kurt's now leading the LinkedIn acquisition, but um, which is much bigger and more complex, but but. For Javier at at uh, Soltero at at Accompli, you know he's now running all of Outlook, um, and uh, exactly mirrored these themes. Let's move on. We so we sort of break acquisition history and facts into two parts. You know, and, and my favorite part is sort of the stories of the acquisition. Sort of is what we've been talking about here. But I bet a lot of our listeners will be really curious about like what's the process um you know once you've realized that you know there's a relationship here that uh, could bear fruit what is the what are the steps in the process when you're actually working through a deal at that point you know from LOI to term sheet to the definitive agreements what are the what are the key milestones for yeah, you guys? And and what specifically are you looking for? Is it cool financial check? Cool there's no lawsuits against them check. Cool their your product is growing with users check those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, look, you have to ultimately, you're going to do a deal, you know, if it makes, you know, strategic sense, um, the technology product fit is there and, um, and the financials you think makes sense for your shareholders. Right. And, um, for us, the fourth one that I would put that over, you know, sort of cuts across all of that is just the people that, as we've already talked about. So, um, the hard part about the deal is these are all, even though we have a quote unquote process and every um, large acquirer um, that is is sort of a repeat player, right? And so all the places that I've been and done this role um, are definitely in that. And, you know, the other ones are people like you mentioned, so Microsoft, Oracle, Facebook, et cetera. Um, repeat players absolutely have a process and there's different flavors and each company has has different places where different types of decisions uh, either take place or which parts of the org are responsible for them. So there's there's definitely a number of different ways to do it. Um, but it's, um, you know, every deal is is its own, you know, sort of perfect snowflake. <laughs> they're all snowflakes. <laughs> and so they're deals and there's unbelievable, you know, correlations from them. And when you get into the, to the granular, you know, um, everyone has decided we're going to make this happen. It becomes kind of a machine. And the, the legal side and the diligence side starts to take on a life of its own and and, and that really does happen. So um, I would say in general, this is tough because on the outside when you, particularly if you're not going through a hardcore sort of auction process and have hired a bank or whatever, but it's a, it's a place where you sort of think, well, look, we're not really for sale, but they seem to be interested. So I'm open to doing this, but I don't want to sort of waste all my um, bandwidth and emotional energy and sort of um, exploring this. How would we do it? So typically, um, there's usually an early meeting, um, you know, with a someone in the business unit um, that's responsible for the product area that's that where there is the strategic interest and the overlap, and trying to get an understanding for the product vision, the product technology, you know, maybe a bit of a demo, um, some a little early point of view on numbers, and I think sometimes it can be tough to decide, you know, when do you share what, um, and I think you know we're always fine if a entrepreneur you know, feels like they want to get an NDA in place before they share some financials and things like that. We, we tend to try to, um, make sure that we kind of have, have checkpoints. Like, you know, if we get, um, 
someone who's trying to sort of take a read on the market because they're about to do a fundraising round and they just figure they better think about it and they want to talk to a, f- a handful of people that are sort of the mm-hmm. logical um, fits for that business and say they decide we're, we're one of them and then, you know, sort of check in with us. You know, we will oftentimes do at least one call without an NDA where we just sort of say, you know, tell us the story and uh, we'll go through that. So there's sort of a high level business product check early on. And then at some mm-hmm. point you start to kind of um, have a feel for the financial um, side as well um, as you go through that. Um, the biggest milestone you'll find with large acquirers is kind of the LOI or the, or, or the term sheet. And that, that um, almost always, um, and, and I truly mean almost always, um, includes a no-shop provision you know, of some period of time. Um, you know, typically sort of 45 to 60 days, sometimes 30 days. It, those are the types of things where once you get to that stage, you'll have a lawyer involved and they can advise you what is quote unquote market. Just like a venture what, financing. It's funny how exactly. that parallels. You're going to have, yes, you're going to have your lawyer and they're going to be able to tell you what's market. They'll educate you on what the business ramifications are of, of what is being done. Um, every big company um, has slightly nuanced ways of doing things. And because we are repeat players and the lawyers are repeat players, there's certain things where, you know, it's basically like, yeah, we're not, you know, we're not going to do that because of the precedent of it and, and that type of thing. So um, oftentimes those are, but they, you know, depending on, um, you know, where the leverage lies, depends on how much those things get negotiated by the buyer or the seller. Again, exactly like a venture round in that respect. And then, um, and then once you get through that, that's when you see the circle of knowledge on both sides expand, but particularly on the buy side. Sometimes it can be overwhelming because we, then we're going to, you know, jump in and do a, you know, a day minimum, oftentimes two or three days of kind of a deep dive, take us through the business, you know, mm. beginning to end um, in terms of go through the product, go through the go to market, you know, go through the financials, go through the operations, go through the technology architecture, et cetera. Um, and then, um, you know, that's when you build, build out a, you know, a very detailed data room and, um, you know, I think with the super early stage companies, sometimes you'll run into some issues where, you know, they didn't have their house in order. They didn't get good legal advice early enough on. And, you know, maybe they were working with a couple of outside agencies and they didn't have them sign an invention assignment agreement, that type of stuff. Those, like those are at this point, the, I saw that more 10 years ago than I do today. I think the, the breadth of, you know, startup legal advice and sort of you know, smart, experienced angels as well. Certainly the venture community, you just, people tend to have a pretty buttoned up shop, particularly if they're venture backed and, um, and things are pretty clean. But if you're outside of the Valley and maybe the company was lucky enough to grow, you know, bootstrapped or whatever, and they kind of just made it all work every now and then you'll run across things where they didn't have their house in order. And then it's, it's rarely a deal killer, but it usually is end up being something you got to sort of work around. So you drive through that at some point you put in place a, um, definitive agreement where, you know, our lawyers will put together a, uh, an acquisition agreement, um, depending on if it's a share purchase or an asset purchase, uh, et cetera. And, um, and you kind of go back and forth on that and, um, you know, try to get it finalized. And ultimately deal, deals are announced once the definitive agreement is, has been signed. And then there's a question of, is it a simultaneous sign and announce um, and close? Meaning, you know, we signed it, we sent the money, we own it. Or is there a split sign and close where, you know, we sign it, we announce it, and then there's 30 days to meet XYZ closing conditions before, you know, we would actually close. Um, you'll see both. Yeah. And, and you mentioned throughout all these steps, there, there was one point in there where the business owner 
um, talks with the company they're acquiring and, and um, you know, compares vision and strategy and, and digs in with, with corp dev. How involved is the business owner throughout that entire process? Are they in every single meeting? You know, are they in that first meeting? Is it the business owner that first contacts that company? Like, wh- what is their role and what is the role of corp dev throughout the entire acquisition process? Yeah, it's critical. So, I mean, w- one thing to know is you can't ignore corp dev. Um, in many ways, they're going to be your guide and your partner throughout this. And I truly view it as a much more collaborative thing. If you're going to get a deal done eventually, it's going to be because everyone thinks it makes sense and you're able to, you know, get together at a, at a, at a valuation that everyone feels good about. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I very much try to make it clear to people, you know, and make sure that our deal leads make it clear that, um, no one can quote unquote make you do anything you don't want to do. So that is one thing I think out of the gates to kind of demystify the whole process and, and take a little pressure off. Um, the relationship with the business owner is critically important. I mean, in the language I use, um, and again, every company has sort of slightly different ways of thinking about this, but I think of it as there's an executive sponsor and there's a business owner. Um, oftentimes you will see, particularly if a company's kind of got some VC intros and things like that, they will be really focused on like trying to get in to meet the CEO or get to meet the, you know, <laughs> the head of the whole business unit. And I've never been guilty of that. Yeah. And like, and it's fine. Like and everyone gets it, you know, it's the old thing of coming high and work down and blah, blah. And it's, it's, it's on, sometimes it can be fine. Other times it's, it can be either off putting or, or even, you know, sort of counter counterproductive in that if you get in front of them too early before the business owner and corp dev have been mm-hmm. able to kind of frame it and, and suss out in combination with you sort of, your business well enough that then we can effectively translate and help people understand why this is exciting, why this matters. They might take one meeting and be like, eh, I wasn't that interested. And then, and then it creates this uphill battle where corp dev and the business owner are like, no, 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 no. We got to spend a little more time on this. This one's interesting. Right. And so trusting out, it's so true. So even if you've got like this perfect, Hey, my venture guy says he is like golfing buddies and best friends with, the CEO or whatever, right? It's it's just a card you, you I generally just sort of say, play it straight up, play it open, and then treat the corp dev person um, and the business owner as people that are your partners to mm-hmm. figure out whether this makes sense. Um, not, um, n- you know, not someone who you got to kind of like micromanage the thing. Because it, ultimately, it's, it's not like a enterprise software sort of SaaS you're going into an IT group. They've got a need for a widget. You've got a widget. You're going to sell them on why yours is the best, and then you know, wham, we're done. Like, get it done, right? <laughs> it just it's it's a it's a it's a very subtle collaborate collaborative dance where where both sides are evaluating each other and getting to know each other. And you can't. I mean, it's it's sort of overblown to say it's a marriage, but look, you're 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 selling your baby that you put heart and soul yeah. into creating. You want to find out if we're good stewards of it, if, if our visions align, and you should care about this. It's those so things. funny going back to the parallels with venture. I mean, it just keeps coming up, but like we see companies make this mistake with us all the time is, you know, they come in, they meet with one partner, and, you know, that relationship is progressing at a natural pace. And then, you know, in the worst case, the founder, CEO, or, but oftentimes one of the other venture backers or somebody will come in and, talk to another partner and it's called, we call it partner shopping and like nothing yeah. will kill a deal faster than that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's less issue of that here because we're, you know, we're not a partnership. There's a there's a natural organizational structure to a big company. But you're still going to somebody think has influence but actually has no context on the relationship and yes. back to that being the most important thing can totally see how that can blow up deals yeah exactly it really blows up deals and that's the other thing why i say like there's almost no misstep that you can't get over if actually it makes business sense right <laughs> and that's the other reason why i say getting people in the mind space of like you're building a great business like you're going to get the exit you deserve and <laughs> we're looking for a collabor collaboration to figure out whether we're the right home for it right it's like it takes all the pressure off because the real answer is you, you don't need to micromanage and overmanage it like we do this off all the time and if we're approaching it with that mindset like we're going to together to figure it out right because the biggest reason people do that is because they're in like value optimization mode in the back of their yep. mind they think i got to maximize value and yep. it's like, yeah, totally. That's it is literally it, yeah. in the, in the bylaws. It's your fiduciary <laughs> responsibility, right? <laughs> and we get it. You get and and so it's part of that. But if you if you overmanage that and overplay it at the wrong wrong times, um, it just it it comes across awkward. And again, if it actually makes sense, you're probably going to recover from it. So even if you do, it's not that big a deal. Like I said, I like I've never not done a deal, but I've had deals yep. where it was much harder to get there because you know we someone figured out some way to get in front of either the CEO or some, you know, some other head of a business unit or something earlier than we probably would have ideally wanted. Or sometimes it comes in that way and that's fine too. But then it's like, you know, people got, got to do your job. The, where to bring that whole thread back around to the core question, you know, that you asked, I think it was Ben, um, the business owner or that sort of head of product is actually an extremely important relationship as well. Like you should have a sense of where, you know, if you were, King for a day and ran that business, where would you think that, you know, you, the startup that you run fits in? And then how do you figure out who's responsible for that part of the business? And that's absolutely just as important a relationship. I would never say, you know, only focus on that relationship and ignore Corp Dev, but I would also never say focus on Corp Dev and don't worry about that relationship. You, you kind of have to have both. And sometimes, again, it's, it's, this probably also is like the venture. It's very organic and wherever you have an in, you know, in a warm intro, take the warm intro and then, and then ask the questions of, you know, Hey, should I talk to someone in Corp Dev or whatever? I have business unit partners who are very sophisticated, have sponsored deals many times. And they, part of the job of running a good, you know, being a good product manager, let alone a kind of business unit, you know, product owner or GM is understanding the outside market and knowing the ecosystem that you're in. So you, they should be out there meeting startups and stuff. So oftentimes they will meet someone and they'll hand it off and say, you know what? I've met with this guy once or twice for coffee. I kind of like where he's headed. You should like nothing to do here. I'm not looking to do it. He's not going to sell, but I just kind of want to get him on Corp Dev's radar. Can you meet with them? That type of thing. Other times mm -hmm. we're, you know, we've partnered with the business unit to develop a strategy and um, over, overall, and we kind of know the spaces that we're sort of particularly interested in. We'll find find a relationship or a company, and we'll get intros and we'll pass them through. Um, I think that is one difference between the VC and the M&A world is that sourcing is not some big ma magical thing. Um, yeah. You know, we every now and then we'll find something that we didn't expect because we've made an extra effort to you know, get out and beat the bushes. But um, we're out there in the market. There's only so many acquirers. Um, people will find us nine out of 10 times. If, you, if you're lucky as a VC firm, you also are in that position. <laughs> Most yeah, of us aren't I'm, that lucky, but <laughs> yeah. Um, this might be good, uh, actually a good way to transition into sort of the, 
next category that we talk about on the show is is acquisition category and so every deal that we look at we assign we say you know was this a product acquisition or a business line acquisition or a people acquisition um we're curious on your end like do you guys do the same thing or or is it more organic like as uh you're looking at different companies and then they tend to fall like like are you guys thinking like yep this is definitely an acquire or like Oh, this could be like a huge business line acquisition, or you know, how, how is that going through your heads? Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's industry store standard lingo, uh, you know, acquires, tech and talent deals, you know, like you know, whatever sort of business acquisitions or product acquisitions. Those those types of things are definitely those are I've heard heard those used. We've used those all the time. Um, we don't get too hung up on it. Um, you know, one construct I've used inside of our business is, you know, from my Bain days, I had a, a um, respect for some of the profit from the core um, analysis. And they'd done, um, there was actually a book written a number of years ago called Profit from the Core. And they'd done analysis of like 2,000 companies and growth initiatives, both M&A and otherwise. And the concept was that once you understand what your core business is as a large scale company, um, Understanding the you know the business that drives the most profits and is sort of the, the most uh, enduring um, from a perspective of you know who is the customer, what's the channel to market, um, what's the geography you're playing in, um, what's the business model, and what's the product. Anytime you change one of those five things, you're like a one step adjacency further from the core, and it creates risk. And actually, they showed through analysis of all these different companies that. You know, once you got, um, I think it was one step adjacency was maybe about a 30 to 40% chance of success. But once you got out, like three or four of those things changed, um, you dropped off to like 10% chance of success. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't take, you know, things that are, are multi-step adjacencies because sometimes those are where the biggest opportunities are. But you have to make sure that they're worth the risk. Um, otherwise, you're just leading to sort of undisciplined diversification and you have no better chances of success than just, you know, a private equity investor or a holding company and probably less because it's not really how your business has been set up to focus, um, you, you know, the, the resources of the company on, right? So um, something like Omniture, we've gone back and looked at that, you know, in hindsight, and that was probably a four-step adjacency in many ways. It was, you know, SaaS, completely new product. Um, it was an enterprise selling motion, which we didn't have in, in mature fashion at that point. Um, and uh, and the business model in terms of you know recurring revenue was 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 new because we hadn't moved to that with the creative side of the business. We it was after that that we moved from creative suite to creative cloud. So that was a in hindsight a very risky big bet. Yeah. But it was a large big business that had was the market leader had real momentum and so you could make that bet and then if you you know focused on the rest of the things that you could control, you know it's ended up being a you know um, two billion dollar plus you know it's on the road to being more than that. Um, uh, business for us. And so you, you, it's not that you don't do those things, but you do them for the right reasons. And so as you think about that, you know, things that are in your core, like meaning we're already in that part of the business, that's where we're more likely to look for, you know, some tech and talent, you know, smaller kind of deals, or we look for like a little bit of a core expansion where it's kind of like a one step, you know, adjacency where maybe we get a new product with a bit of a business around it's been proven in the market, but it can't, you know, it's not scaled yet. We bring that in and we scale it. The marketing cloud in many ways, after the amateur acquisition, there were a number of other add-on acquisitions that were done to broaden out the product portfolio and then sell through the same channel. Um, in the enterprise space in particular, um, 
you've you've seen that you know year after year that once it's extraordinarily and perhaps not even appreciated how unbelievably hard it is to build a you know uh, you know true you know large scale enterprise Salesforce and the companies that have done that that's such an unbelievably huge investment over you know like probably a decade um, to get there that then it's a question of you know how do you maximize the throughput of that channel every year and so finding additional products to put in the salesperson's bag is a big part of it so on the b2b sort of enterprise side that's a big deal um, you know on the consumer side it's it's a slightly different element in terms of, and in particularly you know all the networks and everything with the social networks and, and platforms we've seen have changed the dynamics there a bit but you know historically that was a little bit of yahoo's original strategy was Okay, we have mm-hmm. this portal. Let's just keep adding on things. Right, that was before my time at Yahoo. But it was you, you see the approach driven by the business strategy, and I think that's at Adobe. That's and in, in my personal sort of belief is that it has to be a strategy-driven process. And so the the categorization of what you're going after is driven by what you're trying to accomplish strategically. Cool. Oh, cool. Moving on to our next uh, segment, we always talk about what would have happened otherwise. And it's the part where we try and figure out, you know, if this deal didn't go through, whether other acquirers or, you know, would that company have grown on their own? And I, I feel like a good question to to kind of dive into there is what percentage of deals that you look at actually end up happening? Yeah, it's very low. I mean, um, very low. Um, and it's a question of what look at means, right? <laughs> like, right yeah. You know, we've historically done sort of four to 10 plus deals a year. I mean, I think actually the market strategy is our, our, our sort of strategic umbrella is big enough to do meaningfully more than that. But we've kind of intentionally focused on a strategy that says we, you know, we're going to make we're, we're going to make sure that the ones we do are going to work. And, and um, Adobe's I mean, I have we've had bankers come in and be like, what are you guys doing? How do you do it? And and because everyone around the valley is sort of saying that you know the ones you're doing seem to be working, and I think a lot of it is just the willingness to say no, um, mm-hmm. uh, and that starts at the, you know starts at the top. And, and we have a CEO, um, Shantanu Narayan, who you know I describe as having founder level passion for. He's been here 19 years. He's been CEO nine. Um, wow. You know, no different than a founder who who just feels it in their bones and and feels that level of passion for protecting the mission and the vision and you know that we're going after and um what that means is it's a very high bar on what makes it through the the rubicon of strategy fit tech fit team fit financial expectations etc and so you have to be willing to say no and and um in order to make sure that you you know you, you get the right ones you have you have to be careful that, that doesn't make you risk averse and not moving quick enough and fast enough but um I wouldn't even know how to put a percentage on it, but I would probably say sub 10%. A lot of things have to align to make a deal happen, both on, on both the seller and the buyer side. You know, so you're probably looking at that plus or minus a thousand um, inbounds a year. I mean, we probably get two to five emails a, a day with, hey, would you be interested in checking this out? That sort of thing. Yeah. And there are a, lot a lot of those, a lot of those, there. yeah, I mean, a lot of those, the answers, and it's probably, again, no different than VC. For us, it's just like, hey, that's not a fit, but appreciate you thinking of us. And we try hard um, to give quick answers and quick no's if, if we just don't think it's it's worth it and we don't window shop. Um, you know, if we take a meeting, it's because we think it could be interesting. That's awesome. And that's a great lead in. Uh, the, next, the next segment that we usually do is uh, tech themes where we look around and we try and figure out 
um, you know, what technology themes or, or themes in the industry and the world does this represent to you? And I think a, a really good um, kind of twist on themes here is what, you know, how, do, how, is, how have you tackled M&A differently at the different companies you've been at? And how have you guys, um, you know, taken a different kind of strategic or organizational approach between each one? Yeah. Um, again, M&A is a tool. I mean, uh, you know, I've always joked that if, mm-hmm. if I ever do something noteworthy enough that <laughs> requires a memoir at some point um, and, and this stuff makes it in, it would be like, it's not about the deal, right? It's, that would be, you know, the, the, there's the whole book with Lance Armstrong back in the day. It's not about the bike. It's like, it's not about the deal. I mean, the deal itself is mechanical. And if, if, if you love that world and there's people who do, and frankly, it's, it's a fascinating, fun world on a lot of levels. If you love that world, I mean, those are the folks that end up in banking and I have tons of respect for those guys because I think their jobs are really, really hard and they only get paid if things get done, you know? So, um, and then they oftentimes get a bad rap and there's, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of great ones out there, but, um, the, uh, it's just a tool. And so the question is, what is your strategy? Um, if you sort of tie that back to your core question of like, how are things a little bit different at different companies? Um, I'd say at, at Yahoo, um, we were going in a lot of different directions when I w- um, got in there. We were, I guess it was 08, 09 um, when, I, when I joined. And, you know, there was a little, I found at times things were bubbling up, bottoms up in terms of people being entrepreneurial and trying to get things going at the business level, business unit level. Um, and there wasn't, um, we were going through, it was kind of a restructuring and there wasn't as much of a clear, Hey, we got to go do this tops down. And then you'd, you'd get the inevitable, Hey, we got a call and supposedly Google's looking at buying this. And I was like, so <laughs> you know, like, that's not a strategy. like doing what your competitors yeah, are doing is not a strategy. Not right. A strategy. So we, we spent time around getting alignment around strategy. We spent time around locking in the concept of from a process perspective of an executive sponsor so that so that you got the alignment early tops down on strategy and then it made sure that when we were spending time on things it uh it tied to that um but frankly i mean yahoo had a reputation and we worked hard on this but it was just a little bit of the reality at some point of the, of the culture was you know we had a reputation for being a little bit slow and so we tried hard to make sure that we were transparent with entrepreneurs around the different hoops and stuff we were going to have to jump through together so that they could feel in control of it and we could feel like we were in it together instead of it just feeling like this monolithic bureaucratic thing. And it mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't that, but it was, it was just a, a nature of sort of how things got done and that culture and sort of where they were. Um, and the culture of the company affects the process. At Zango, I mean, we had, the company had been founded like three years before. Was, I mean, Mark's an incredibly <laughs> yeah. aggressive, dynamic um, entrepreneur if he believed it made sense and we could convince him that we could go do it. So, I mean, I remember working on a deal and, you know, we found out that some entrepreneurs had spun off from one company that we thought was interesting and gone and done something else. And you could just tell from talking to the guy that had been left behind was that the real creative juice had walked out the door. And, and so it was basically like, you got off the phone and it was like being in a movie. I was like, find those guys, <laughs> you know? And so wow, some awesome. of the team got them. Someone on the team got them on the phone. We literally, like two hours later, we had them on the phone. And I was like, can you come to San Francisco tomorrow? And they were like, no. Like, are you crazy? And I was like, great. We'll be there at one o'clock. <laughs> and we like <laughs> hopped on awesome. a plane and went down. And like, it, it, was, it was sort of like, it was this incredible, you know, it was fun because you felt like you were going to go make it happen immediately. Um, it was that type of time in that company. And from a strategy perspective, 
we were trying, we, we had, we had the sort of tiger by the tail in terms of, you know, what was happening with social and everything. We had, we knew the categories that we needed to add from a social gaming perspective. You needed to find the teams to go do them because we didn't have enough people in house to do it. It was that type of voracious growth. And so it made strategic business sense to try to move that fast. Hmm. Um, and part of it was just, again, the culture at the top. It's just, look, I guess my point is the culture of the company, the strategy of the company, where it is in the arc of its growth will define what process it creates and how it goes it goes about it. And then also what it um, what it sort of means. And, you know, at Adobe, um, we have these bigger arcs that we're working against. And, um, you know, the thing the, from a corporate strategy perspective, um, what we've been focused on for, for several years are sort of three big trends. Um, one is, um, as I sort of say, everyone in both the consumer and the, the enterprise side has been dealing with, it's just this unbelievable wave of mobile. And like, the, mm -hmm. you know, how do you get it to the point where it's truly a tailwind? And there's only a handful of companies that I think have really cracked the code. Facebook, the pivot they did, and I was there at Zanga when they were trying to figure that out, and it, you know, neither one of us um, really had it working for us. They figured out how to make it work for them. And um, you know, it really took their business to another heights. And it's like every year when Mary Meeker now at Kleiner Perkins, formerly Morgan Stanley comes out with that internet report and that there's that slide where she shows the percentage of, um, time spent on the internet shifting to mobile And every year it like outpaces the trend line from the year before. And it's like, how do you get it to the point where that's truly a tailwind so that that is just naturally making your business you know, exceed expectations. So that was one. It's like make mobile a tailwind across our entire business. Um, second was it's obvious um, when you look at the consumer internet that the last 10 years have been around unlocking network effects, right, through social networks, marketplace business models, platform business models. Um, there's an interesting um, opportunity, I think, in the, in the sort of SaaS-based enterprise to look at unlocking similar network effects. And the way you do that is by making data and content like really strategic assets. And historically, enterprise software has largely been, you know, we're tools. You know, we'll sell you a tool and you do whatever you want with, with that tool. Um, whereas consumer platforms look at data and content as the strategic assets that are, that are sort of theirs. And there's a hybrid approach that... Um, I think you're starting to see emerge in the in B2B businesses as well, where um, customers certainly have their own data, but they blend it with um, network level data from the from the technology providers as well. And so those are some big trends that we've been openly pursuing, and um, are re really sort of came from outside in analysis of what was happening, not just in our own space, but actually was happening across the broader landscape, including the consumer um, world that I'd sort of seen at Yahoo and Zanga. Yeah, that's great. It's really cool. The uh, the kind of next section before, or I guess our last section before we uh, we do carve outs is um, the the conclusion. And this is where we decide. You know, usually just David and I did this acquisition go well? Do we call it an A like Instagram or you know <laughs> on, on down the line? Hard How to argue with that one. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you guys have any kind of internal process where you look back and or, or even just isolated examples of like? what you look for and, and success metrics of, yes, that was a good acquisition and we should do more things like this? So one of the things that our team's responsible for under me is, is the M&A integration function. And I've always felt like that's a critical to be combined in the same, same group because otherwise, 
it breeds a behavior that sort of feels mm -hmm. like, hey, we're just responsible for banging out the deal. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter behavior. if you throw it over the wall and someone yeah. else will integrate it, that type of thing. I always myself have thought of the job as a growth job. It just happens that a deal is part of it. And you have to partner with the entrepreneur and partner with the business owner and sort of be CEO of that growth opportunity until someone else can truly take the mantle that will be responsible mm -hmm. for running that business. And if you think about it that way, there's little things where you put a little extra amount of care and attention into you know, things like retention packages. And even though the entrepreneur is telling you that this person's critical, you're actually sensing that maybe that's more for historical reasons and they don't understand that in the bigger company, once they're inside, this person who's been their right-hand person from an operational perspective, there's like three other functions that are going to serve that purpose for them. And they're mm -hmm. actually less important. So you kind of underweight, you sort of talk to them and collaborate to figure out how actually you want to maybe reward them more at the time of the deal, but actually put a little more um, retention for someone else that's going to, their, their importance is going to go up post acquisition, those types oh, of nuances. If you're not focused on the integration when you're, do, when you're doing the deal, you just do things differently. And, um, and so that's important. And so by having the integration function in there, we, um, we make sure that you know they're in our weekly meetings and they, we share learnings and it's sort of part of the culture. So to me, it starts with culture inside the group, which is, you know, it's a growth leader um, function, not kind of a deal function. So that's one. Um, from a formal sort of postmortem evaluation process, um, we commit to reporting out to, um, you know, our CEO and CFO as well as the board every year, uh, every quarter. We do a report for two years. Um, after a deal that reports against um, mm. basic, you know, key um, key value drivers and metrics. You know, there, there as you might imagine, there's financial one, uh, there's an, there's a product one, there's sort of employee retention, depending on, on sort of how many people we're trying to retain, that type of stuff. And excuse me, we try to make sure that you know we're being hard on ourselves and you know not just greens across the board, but we're being honest about you know <laughs> where things are sort of yellow and red and. Um, every once in a while, we'll do a more formal deep dive postmortem if, if something hasn't gone yeah. well. Um, you know, nothing ever, th these things are really hard. And um, as I alluded to earlier with the statistics from the profit from the core, um, I always joke that in general, you know, this is not NBA free throw shooting. It's much more Hall of Fame baseball hitting, you know, meaning yeah. for those that aren't sports fans, <laughs> you know, it's not 70, 80, 90%. It's, it's probably plus or minus, uh, you know, 30% is, is not all bad. And um, our track record at Adobe is actually, you know, dramatically higher than that. Now, every now and then, it's like you make lemonades out of lemons where the things didn't work out like you expected them to, but you had the right team and the culture fit and the product to build from, and you went in a slightly different direction. And that's okay too, right? And that goes back to why culture fit is important. It says if things go wrong and the market plays out differently, you can still create value. Um, there are definitely companies that have meaningful hundreds of millions of dollar bets that are effectively swing and misses and complete write downs. And we haven't had that. And I think a lot of it has to do with um, the culture of focusing on thinking about the long range before you even do the deal. So the postmortem and the valuation is important, but it's more the fact that you know you're going to be doing it and you know that that's what we all care about. Um, and that's what, it, what sort of changes the upfront. I love that as a as a way to to wrap it too. That you know, um, culture is uh, is you know what's going to drive uh, you know things are. It's interesting to too think about 
back to this analogy with venture, like the happiest day of the next two years of your company is going to be when you close that round, like, and then the real hard work starts (laughs) and, (laughs) you know, it's, um, it's the entrepreneurial drive that's going to keep founders engaged when, um, you know, life is, is quite challenging. And, um, and I'm sure that's the same, you know, after an acquisition inside the company and kind of gets back to, um, if it's not the right culture fit, you're not going to have that drive to keep going. hundred percent. And, and, and it's, it can be sad too, because you see it where, I mean, entrepreneurs who sell something and it doesn't fit and it ends up withering on the vine or being killed or dies inside a big company, you meet those guys later or, you know, women, and it's like, they can't be more bitter, right? Yeah. Some, something they, they poured their life into, they feel wasn't, mm. um, respected and honored and, and whatnot. And, and sometimes, you know, the market plays out differently and they, they get that and that's that. But if a comp- big company through bureaucracy or missteps or lack of culture fit or whatever, you know, destroys, destroys the, the labor of love that every startup is, that's like, that's just such a tragedy. Right. And it's, yeah. and yet, and yet in, in, in turn, the legacy that accrues to the founder when something had is phenomenally successful post acquisition is, you know, is enormous and you see that. Right. And, and, uh, and so that's why I think this, this, the fit and and people being aligned and going about things the same way just matters so much. Uh, Cause what you said um, about that kind of moment in time, Hey, celebrate it. <laughs> you got the money in the bank. Um, and then when you do a, uh, selling the company, it's literally, it's not just the money in the company's yeah. bank. It's usually the money in the entrepreneur's bank account. <laughs> so it's worth celebrating. It's awesome. It's amazing. Yeah. We always love to celebrate with, the, with them, but it's I, like, that's why we test so it's much. The culture thing is like, yeah, it's day, literally it's day one. It's the beginning, not the end. And if you aren't mm-hmm. fired up about that, by the way, it's okay if you're not, you just got to be honest about it early on. Cause if you try to pretend like, Oh yeah, yeah I'm in it for the long haul. I'm so excited. This vision. It's like, we'll figure right. that out. And then you like, piece the like, that's when you're going to be better, right? Yeah, you can't fake passion. <laughs> yep. Totally. So true. in so many walks of life. Um, let's move on real quick. Uh, we do have a follow-up. We want to make sure we cover this week, uh, that I will just mention briefly, but, uh, Instagram. So, uh, Taylor, one of the things we do is, um, if something, new happens uh on one of the deals we've covered in the past uh we call it out on the show um and in this case relevant to two episodes we've had in the past instagram launched stories so we covered instagram as one of our early shows and then we covered facebook's failed acquisition of snapchat um and super interesting to watch what's happening with instagram stories yeah i don't want to dive too much into this because it's not not the dedicated episode for it but um you know, Facebook is very scared of Snapchat. Snapchat doesn't have the global penetration that Facebook does. So there's, you know, plenty of, of uh, opportunity to defend international turf there. But they very well should be afraid of Snapchat because of the, the engagement that they're getting and, and the kind of it's the first place that, that people check and where a lot more activity happens than Instagram. And it's really interesting to see Facebook after having some failed attempts to launch Facebook branded platforms to disrupt uh um snapchat, snapchat and others yep uh instead saying you know what 
all these kids are already on Instagram, even though Instagram is about that one perfectly curated, crafted photo. Let's see if we can throw this this completely other paradigm into this and and see if Instagram can be the one hub for that that generation. Yeah. And I we'll, feel like this might we'll even this might merit a future episode. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, if you want to hear that, let us know on email or Slack. Um, but let's uh, let's move on quickly to carveouts. Um, Taylor, did uh, uh, do you want to go first? Yeah, absolutely. So the the my three most recent reads. I, I'm by the way, I read constantly. I'm <laughs> I'm sort of at my my family and my my wife is definitely much more of a purger. And I think if if I moved entirely to a Kindle, she'd be happy. But I tend <laughs> to not only like to read books, but then sort of see them around the house. It just kind of makes me happy. I grew up in one of those households, and uh, so yep. it's just it's Love just it. part of part of life and part of you know, uh, sort of embracing everything that's out there to be learned. And you can feel like you can never have enough time to get through them all. But the three most recent ones I've read and um, actually loved all three, um, one was uh, Mindset by Carol Dweck, which uh, talks about the the growth yeah. versus fixed Great mindset. Book. And um, just phenomenal. And I, like, look, the basic concept you can you can embrace and understand in, in 30 seconds, you know, it's the, the concept of are you approaching life you know, with this feeling that everything is fixed and you just got whatever um, talents you were given in life and that is what it is and you have to sort of expose those but not, uh, you know, you, you don't have a chance to grow or do you believe that actually, you know, you have what you have uh, it, but it's basically irrelevant and the question is, you know, what are you, you, know, what are you gonna, going to grow towards through, through hard work and effort? Um, and what was fascinating by reading the book is you, when you describe it the way you just did, Anyone who's sort of in, you know, ambitious type A entrepreneur or, you know, like, like those of us on this podcast are, are I'm sure thinking, well, I'm, I'm a growth person. I'm always trying to get better. and It's great. And I read this book and it was very humbling to, to sort of realize that in some parts of your life, you were completely growth oriented and other ways you had intrinsically and in, sort of had this concept yeah. of, uh, of a fixed mindset that, oh, well, yeah. you know, I just, I have talent in that or I don't. And, um, yeah. and so thinking deeply about that for yourself, for your kids, if you're a parent, um, for your team, if you're a leader, I thought was incredibly powerful. Yeah. Wow. I, I was having drinks with a, um, a friend the other night and he asked me, so are you more of a routine person or are you like flexible to do whatever? And it was so interesting that, um, you know, in, in the work that we do at Pioneer Square Labs, we're super flexible. If it's like, hey, you got to fly down to LA in two days because, you know, the opportunity for this company is to meet with someone there doing that. Or if it's your marketing today or your product today, like all over the place and schedule changes all the time. But in my personal life, like I need to wake up at the same time and have the exact same morning routine every morning or else I'm not myself. And it's amazing how how different we can be in different aspects of our lives when we think of yeah. ourselves as either a routine person or a growth person or, or whatever it is. And it, it's not necessarily unilateral across the board. Yeah, no, totally. That actually, I mean, that makes me think of another one, which, um, you know, if you're if you're exploring all the podcasts and this one is, is I think, literally or near the top of the charts, but I've definitely been enjoying Tim Ferriss's one and I think his focus yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> on um, routines and the questions around morning routines and stuff just fascinates me because I, um, I'm probably, there's things where I'm somewhat routine oriented, but there's a lot of things where I rebel against it and don't want to commit to an absolute strict routine. Um, and uh, because I kind of like the dynamic that you described of like being ready for the most important thing and hop on the plane and, you know, go do that. And, and uh, it, it's fascinating to sort of think about uh, how important routines and systems are to success. Uh, that's another one I would fly. Um, I'll, I'll, before I turn it over, I'll just flag the, the other two. The second would be uh, Shoe Dog about um, Phil Knight um, from Nike. Yeah. And 
unbelievable entrepreneurial journey and um, just an incredibly revealing memoir that I really just found um, illuminating, inspiring, and awesome. But it also, to me, you know, for you, for um, for you, David, on the venture side, it will give you you you'll, you will come away reading this book. You'll feel like like you're doing God's work, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I think we I think we underestimate how. We, this concept that, that capital is almost available from anywhere and that, you know, you guys in the venture community, and actually I have Adobe Ventures under me as well, so we, we, we do this here and there, is that, you know, where it's like we're competing to be the ones who provide capital to the right businesses or whatever. And it's like there was this point in time where, like, businesses that, you know, are now, like, changing the world literally couldn't get capital. Couldn't it's just them. insane. Yeah. Like, reading the story, and I'm not talking about a short period of time. Like, for, like, I can't remember, like, seven, eight, almost 10 years he was like on a shoestring and like trying to get these bank loans it was just crazy it, it just it was it, it blew your mind so it was uh, that was that one was phenomenal uh, david is he, doing god's work let's be clear <laughs> yeah no, no, no I, yes yeah, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly uh, um and then the last would be originals by um by adam grant um and, uh, you know, that was just, you know, sort of focusing in on, on creativity and sort of what are the hallmarks of people um, and how to, you know, how do they go about that and, um, and how do you be original and who are the originals and stuff. And so, uh, you know, as I said, I think one of the fun things about software and Internet is it, uh, it gives a lot of clay for, uh, for, for all of us to play with. Thing. And, um, you know, you can, you can absolutely be an original if you, if you want to go be. So, uh, um, those three were those three have been a lot of fun. The last uh, the last uh, probably even two or three weeks, I've just kind of churned through all of them. That's awesome. The originals, uh, I hadn't heard of that. I have to add it to my list. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll go next real quick because uh, it picks up on a couple of those themes from a from a disparate angle. We we started the episode on a sports topic, so I can't end it on one. I can't not end it on one, given that it's the Olympics right now. And oh, yeah. um, my carve out is if you haven't seen, everybody's got to go watch Simone Biles, the oh, women's gymnast. God. I mean, she is this girl is like the most dominant athlete in her sport I think I've ever seen. She's like, she makes Michael Jordan look like he's in the D league, you know, would be the, uh, the, um, the, the, the comparison. Um, and she just, just now just won the, uh, individual all around gold medal in the Olympics by an enormous margin. Yeah. I've never seen the person who was best in their sport be so far ahead of the entire pack. Yeah. Incredible. And one of the, I was, watching an interview with her or reading uh, an interview with her and um uh one of the things that uh was said in it it reminds me of of the mindset taylor of your carve out um when she was a little younger i mean she's still only 19 but when she was a little younger she didn't really have a lot of confidence in herself and would say oh well i just i'm, I'm not as good as the other girls you know and like <laughs> and now that she is like the most dominant athlete that's ever lived in the sport um pretty inspiring so yeah. that's mine for the week yeah yeah love it Mine's a quickie. Um, I, uh, for those of you who listen to the Alaska Airlines episode, know that um, I have a thing for airplanes. And uh, there's this incredible video on Vox. It's only 10 minutes long on the history of the Concorde, how it came to be, how that was funded, what the other supersonic um, airplane undertakings were, and why we don't have supersonic flight today. So if that's uh, um, for, for airplane nerds out there, you probably know it all, but it's just a really well put together little 10 minute video and, um, I, I, it's, it's thrilling. So I highly recommend going and checking it out. That's all we've got. Awesome. That's a wrap. Thanks yeah. everybody for listening. And most importantly, huge thank you to Taylor for joining us. Yeah. Taylor, where, where can our audience find you? 
Um, yeah, no, I'm, uh, you know, I'm here at Adobe, so uh, feel free to drop me a line at Barrett at Adobe.com if you have something you think we should be looking at. Um, I'm also on Twitter at just Taylor Barrett and, um, you know, LinkedIn as well. So uh, feel free to reach out and, uh, you know, happy to chat. Awesome. And listeners, if you like the show, uh, rate us on iTunes, tweet this, ep- to, tweet this episode to your friends, um, share it wherever you see fit. And uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.